This is Political Arts. My guest this week is Michelle Johnson, Lieutenant General, retired of the United States Air Force. Her distinguished career in the military reads as a string of firsts. First female Rhodes Scholar from the Air Force. First female Cadet Wing Commander. First female Superintendent of the US Air Force Academy. Johnson has also served in senior command at the Pentagon and at the Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Powers of Europe. She is now Senior Vice President of the National Basketball Association and heads up referee operations across the league. In this interview, she explains why she always found time to smell the flowers, to appreciate the beauty of horses, and to treat philosophy and poetry as windows into the human condition. Michelle, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, the first question I had is based on something you said to me earlier, which is that every American views themselves as a humble boy or a girl from the Midwest or the Pacific Northwest or the Northeast. And in your case, it was Iowa. And I wondered how your childhood and where you grew up informed your worldview and specifically your view of ethical leadership. So it probably starts with hard work as my my parents were farmers. We did not make a lot of money, but we valued what we had. So we really uh, were very careful about possessions, but also um, curious still. So the the, the local library was the window to the world. It was before the internet. Uh, And so reading was my window to the world. And my parents were inquisitive, if not formally educated. So um, I was intrigued about the greater outer world out there and would climb under the tops of the buildings of the farm and see in, in uh, the Midwest, you can see almost the curvature of the earth. It's a very big sky and wonder what was in the, the big world. And, and so you find a way to read. And then some openings come up um, for different civic organizations who do uh, model government, orga- you know, organizations like the American Legion Auxiliary does a state government mock mm-hmm. um, event every year, and they did it in 1976, which was my junior year in high school, which is also the bicentennial of the United States, right. and I managed to be able to go to the Boys Girls Nation that year, so it was very eye-opening mm. to see the, the, the greater world outside, so um, instead of feeling isolated, I felt like I, we had a chance to go see things, and it was just, the opportunities were just starting to open up, mm. just the society was making that possible. And when does the thought to join the Air Force occur to you? Well, there was um, an interesting time in the, in the late 70s. I was a good student. My family did not have an experience with college. Um, but a recruiter from the Air Force Academy was at the career day. And I thought, well, you know, um, I could have a good education. I could play college sports. I was a good basketball player. Um, I can serve my country for a while. That'll be a foundation. It'll be a, a foundation of service, and then to be able to go on and do other things. I just, I just stayed, I stayed uh, for a long career rather than leaving early. But uh, it wasn't a preconceived notion. It was just an opportunity at the time. Mm. Do you worry that 
people, especially when they're very young, joining the armed services or the air force, that they don't quite know what they're getting into. Was that the case for you? I don't worry about them not knowing what they're getting into. I think it's a um, a sense of service. I think is a good thing, and being exposed to something bigger than yourself. Um, I understand the the seriousness of of military service and that it's it's fraught in its way, but I I don't think that's um, a problem really. What I do worry about is that fewer people in a volunteer force in the United States serve. So there's a lack of familiarity. And what we don't want is a gap between your, the military that defends its society and the society itself. If, mm-hmm. if there is a cultural gap, then that's not, not a good thing in a democracy. So that's, that's what would worry me when it's a bit of a mystery. And it's not, mm-hmm. it's not a... Um, it's not as stereotypically uh, a, a military experience as people think. Unfortunately, they just don't know mm. because they don't know any. They don't know as many people who served. Mm. And I remember actually, um, in a commencement address you gave, you you quoted another person who said that what we obtain too cheaply, we esteem too lightly. It's the dearness only that gives everything its value. Thomas mm. Paine said that, and it's. Um, I th- think there's value in, in being a part of a large organization and, and if you can step back and take that in and draw the lessons from it. Also the diversity of it, believe it or not, in this society where we feel like things are more divisive. Um, in military service, you're thrust into work with a very diverse cohort of friends and colleagues. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that that's a, a leavening uh, opportunity and a, a chance in a, in a, for a nation mm-hmm to have a group of people who are used to working across what could be divisions and, and see them as strengths. Mm. And I think the U.S. Armed Services certainly has made a lot of progress along the diversity axis, <clears throat> so racially, gender-wise, and even for LGBT servicemen and women. But one area where there's a lack of diversity, in my view, is socioeconomic. There are certain very elite classes whose children or who themselves are always insulated from service. What kind of effect do you think that has? I, I, I think it's not helpful. I think that's mm. part of the, the divide between the cultures. And if it can be bridged in respect, and I, I think there are opportunities to do that, then, then it'll be helpful. But um, it is a bit of a gap that way. And federal employees don't make the same... Um, uh, amounts of money as people at the elite levels do. It's comparable, it has to be, to be able to people have a living wage, but uh, there, this is part of this lack of knowing, you know, saying, well, I don't want you to give up the chance of going to college by going to the military, sort of a, in this sort of monolithic sense of what it is, when mm-hmm. in fact it might be a way to actually to get to college or actually um, get a perspective on life that would help inform you later as a senior leader in an elite role. I wonder if you could introduce the first piece of artwork that was important to you. When I was in uh, high school, we had a particularly good um, English literature instructor, I thought. And it was a bit ironic. It was before I knew I would join um, the Air Force. But uh, Rupert Brooke was a war poet from World War I and wrote um, a poem called The Great Lover. Um, And it's not about amorous love. It's about loving life and everything around him and what he would miss when he was gone. And I just found it a very poignant reminder to treasure uh, the things around us, whether it's the 
brown foam that chases the water uh, to the edge when the waves run out, or uh, or the smell of you know wet blankets, mm. um, just uh, to really appreciate life. Mm. Did you ever write in your life? I, I mean, those are very poetic no, observations. I, I wrote <laughs> for fun. I wrote uh, used to write write uh, little stories for fun, but it's it's been a while since I've taken the chance. So I want to, in this next segment, talk a little bit about your career in the Air Force um, leading up to becoming head of the U.S. Air Force Academy. One thing I wonder is, how do you deal with the sheer weight and the power of the United States as a military force? Do you think it's a good thing for the world? And as someone who's high up in its chain of command, how do you deal with that responsibility? It has to be balanced. I, what really struck me when I, in my early part of my career when I was flying um, strategic uh, cargo aircraft, I would you know, show up at airports, com commercial airports, as well as military ones around the world, especially Africa, the Middle East, South America, Europe, and uh, was really struck you know, by, by the, the presence, the American presence overseas. Mm. And... Um, the opportunities to do good with that in times of crisis um, to help protect allies. But as I went along, I realized that people see it the other way, obviously. And so it's something we have to be very respectful of. And I, I think going back to our original comment, sure. um, for individual Americans, sometimes we forget that we do represent this giant force uh, that, that outweighs those of others in so many ways. So to have that be overused would be dangerous. So I think people who are in service are very respectful of, of what it represents and, uh, and put a lot of stock in the elected leaders to do the right thing. Um, but when you wear the oath to the Constitution, that's what you're signing up to, is what the elected leaders have, have chosen to do. And so those are conscientiously chosen um, Positions mm. and uh, and give and people have deep pause at big world events um, mm. when thinking about when we commit forces uh, in in remote places. Uh, technology has made it easier to access more remote places, and those are the kinds of things we need to have a better understanding of, especially in cyberspace. Yeah, um, and space itself, uh, which we've refrained from militarizing, but but there's a lot of pressures from different nations now. So as we don't need to do everything we're capable of. Mm. I think that's, that's, uh, that's the challenge, again, for the elected leaders and how we use that force. Mm. Were there moments of doubt throughout your career where you wondered whether we were on the right side on this issue, and how did you deal with that? I think several of us, when we went into Iraq in um, 2003, you know, Hoped it was the right thing. Mm. Um, uh, democracy is based more than on elections, and there are so many foundational requirements in terms of, of, of nations of people and how they deal with property, how they run their economy, um, these foundations that are necessary to have a effective democracies beyond elections. And 
and those things um, weren't pursued as much. And so I, I did have pause mm. there. Um, and I think thoughtful people did. And there are times along the way, I mean, people in uniform still vote. It's a sure. secret vote. And they don't all vote in one block, although people would imagine they do. They really, really don't. Mm. Hmm. I wonder how I wonder how that how that feels to wear the two hats at the same time. You know, to be a member and serving in this professional capacity, but also to be a citizen. Do the two things kind of pull at you? Well, that's something that's discussed a lot because the a, a military career is considered a profession. Sure. Um, and one of the things that uh, you are accountable for, if you feel like you're being asked to do something that's Ill- immoral or illegal, to, to refuse and to accept the consequences. Wow. And that's something people think about seriously, and I have too, of uh, accepting the, uh, the consequences and, and really think through what, what you've been asked to do. What's um, evolved with uh, the remotely piloted aircraft now, because of the stresses of people who monitor targets for days and months on end, that um, there have been instances that commanders have, the way they've rendered orders uh, or, or approached taking a target, have allowed people to be able to decline to say, I can't do this one. Because if you're monitoring a person in a family setting, and then now the time is to strike them. There's a, an act of, of morality there that, that we're starting to explore in a different way because of the nature of this remoteness and the, and the stresses they feel. So I think that's a, it's a, it's a healthy reaction to the aspects of modern warfare. Those lines of communications and responsibility are important and and can be really fragile. And so there's a, a greater respect for what that means to people having to make those choices remotely. And there's, there's a psychology and a, and, a, and a weight that comes with that. Wow. I wonder if you can introduce the second piece of artwork. Well, I wouldn't uh, narrow it down to one thing in particular. I've always, uh, I've always loved the beauty of horses. Mm. And so horses in motion and the running and the motion of their manes flying and their tails and the sinewy lines of their legs extending and, and striving and, and flat out running, I've always found that just particularly beautiful in mm. terms of a, sort of a natural form of, of energy. What about aircraft? I, I, that wasn't what my what passions were yeah. younger. Um, when I fly them, I, I'm, I feel fondness. For aircraft, you know, the way sailors love their ships sure. and pilots love their aircraft. Um, there are some aircraft. There's a, the Constellation 121. Was a, The Connie was a beautiful, it's a beautiful line to it. It's very sweeping uh, shape to that, that particular aircraft. It's really, really lovely. I remember um, a story about you riding a neighbor's horse and having to <laughs> having to confess to it. <laughs> oh, you know this. Wow, you've really done your homework. So when I was a, a little girl, my father ran a, a farm service com- a store in uh, rural Illinois, actually. And I was sort of a rural latchkey kid. And I explored down the road. There was a horse in a pasture all by himself. It was a beautiful pasture. And he really was neglected. He had cockleburs in his mane. And, 
so I would lure him to the fence and, and get on him to try to ride him and could only make it a few steps because he would invariably shy away and buck me off. Um, and after I'd done this for some days and weeks, um, one day I was particularly scratched up and could no longer hide it from my, my mother. Uh, so she and my father marched me down the road to apologize to the neighbors for trespassing and riding their horse. And they, were, they had been uh, commuting to Chicago to work. They really weren't aware that I was doing it, obviously. But they looked at each other, and then they looked at me, and they asked, you can ride Stormy? <laughs> wow, I didn't know he was named Stormy. He was blind in one eye, and nobody could ride him. So um, they opened up their 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 pasture, and they said, come over anytime. My, my mom and dad even uh, got me a, a, a mare, a horse that we could house with him, and it was a lot of fun. So my lesson was, you know, take a chance, tough it out, and it's going to turn out okay. So it yeah. probably taught me a lesson for life right there. Well, I, I mean, I had this image. I wondered <laughs> when you first got into a fighter jet or an aircraft, whether you were thinking about Stormy. <laughs> well, I think I tried to learn to not to not be um, stopped by fear. I mean, it's bravery, courage isn't the lack of fear. It's just not being paralyzed by it. So um, as you take chances in life, and I'm not a huge risk, risk taker, um, but I, I found it, it's reinforcing along the way when you take chances like that, these little lessons that say, this will be all right. Mm-hmm. You can take a chance on it. And when, you, when I get into uh, jet pilot training, some things are just very uncomfortable. You have a mask on, a G-suit, a helmet. It's hot. We wow. did pilot training in Arizona, so it's well over 120 degrees. And, uh, and then it's just, it's just uncomfortable. And so there are those moments of discomfort when you still you can remind yourself to go, it, it's going to be all right. Just, just, it, it might turn out better than you think. So when you um, assumed leadership of the U.S. Air Force Academy, again, the first woman to do so, you broke it down and, and broke it down to, I believe, the eight points that you thought were central to the mission. And the first one I was struck was leadership and character development. How did you define that? And that's, that's a difficult thing to do, is, is to give a, a crisp definition of, of character. But all the service academies really exist to try to do that so that these young officers, when they consider those difficult choices that I mentioned earlier about really thinking about lawful orders, giving them and, and receiving them, and doing the right thing with this terrible uh, responsibility you have to manage violence. Uh, so, th- there were curricula we had about character and tried to, to, to get at uh, the aspects of it. What we tried to talk about in my time, and I, I tried to address, was you know, courage with humility. Um, there's a tendency when you go to an elite institution to suffer hubris a bit, to say, well, we've done this very difficult thing, and that, therefore I'm better than you. And it's like, well... That's not the point of it. The point of it is to test yourself and to see if you can be stronger and better for it. And so we talked about courage and humility um, and resilience uh, to be able to overcome adversity yourself and to respect others as much as you respect yourself. And one of the great responsibilities at a place where young people are in dormitories together is to maintain a culture of, of respect for one another. And there's something about human nature wherein uh, people seek their own advantage often. They're imperfect. And even though service academies are 
arguably safer places to be than college campuses or other settings, the standard was perfection. The standard, standard was zero sexual assault or harassment or disrespect for other people in any way. And yet every year we had 1,200 new students come in with their opinions and biases from the different parts of the country and across the world. And we had to start over each time to say we need to be respectful of each other. Um, and those are the challenges that we had in this institution where, where something that could be really an innocent learning point or not so innocent learning point between two people could suddenly become a national issue because of our responsibility there. So uh, West Point Annapolis just happened to be more proximate to the East Coast, but the Air Force Academy had a very similar uh, sense of responsibility and scrutiny. And so that's why it was so important to talk about our efforts for character, that we weren't perfect, but we were striving to help people be as excellent as they could possibly be to be able to make good choices from the moment they arrive, which is difficult when you're 18 years old and, and learning. Mm. And one thing I was struck by was that you turned to great works in literature and philosophy um, to try and instill that kind of character. So I wondered why this reliance on the liberal arts and how did it go? Well, you know, the, the career curriculums at all the academies are about 50-50, the humanities and science, technology, engineering, math. Um, in order to lead humans, you need to understand the human condition. Uh, there's more and more pressure to focus on the vocational aspect, I think, of, of education and, and jobs and, and STEM uh, for the engineering. Um, and yet, again, understanding the human condition uh, creates creative thinking, critical thinking, mm-hmm. also comes from being able to understand history and philosophy and poetry and and what words mean, and, and, and so more, many of our faculty would derive lessons from, uh, from the classics. And, maybe, and this is a small thing and obvious, but I walked in on March 15th on a, on a class um, acting out um, Act Three of Julius Caesar mm. in the Senate, and um, the cadet who was, and they were doing it in a Shakespearean way, so you had to respond to the cues of the other students. It was a really a nice setting, and the one acting as Julius Caesar stopped at a certain point when there's a break, and he looked at me and he said, is this how it feels as a leader to feel lonely, to feel isolated? And I said, well, right, the knives are a bit of a, you know, an extreme <laughs> here, but, but yes, when you're trying wow. to do the right thing, when you do as a leader feel alone sometimes, that was to the extreme, but it really, uh, you can use... Um, the lessons people have known about human beings for a long time uh, to really have people discover it themselves and, and really own it. So that made it a more uh, lasting lesson, I think, mm. than just in a classroom uh, telling people what to do. How do you deal with that loneliness in your own career? Because the flip side of being the first woman to do X is that right. you're often the only one. That is the case. What's, you know, for all of us, we need a network, right? A network of our friends and our family who we love. Uh, I've been married 28 years uh, to my husband, and we have to live apart a lot for work. Um, But he's a wonderful person so that, you know, for a sanity check or to say, you know, I may not have gotten that right, but am I, did I really miss it that much? Or, and check, check with him. And with friends who can be honest with you, I think that's one of the 
the real saving grace is when you have not been perfect for someone to be able to be honest about it, but also help you work through that and realize that that's not the end of days. We, um, you can feel lonely, but not have to be alone all the time. Mm. The other thing that, um, that is helpful is to be able to call other senior leaders. And as I've gotten older and I've seen the levels of responsibility, college presidents, um, senior military officers, people in business, when they've been around large groups of people before with these big responsibilities, there's an understanding. And to be able to pick up the phone and say, have you ever seen one of these? I just saw this today. I thought I'd seen it all, but I hadn't seen one of these. Mm. And what kinds of questions should I ask? What should I be thinking about? Mm. And that's, that's a very helpful thing. And actually, the services actually encourage generals to call each other and, and to be have at least enough shared vulnerability to say, I don't have the answer to this one. Mm-hmm. What, what might I be able to do mm-hmm. and to, to get it right? Um, so those are, those, are, uh, those are moments that really are poignant. But, you know, it's, it's part of the growing. I, I remember when I was a lieutenant colonel and a major and I were talking in, in uh, Aldafra Air Base and United Arab Emirates in the 90s. And he came by, and he had to assume a new role. And he said, when I walk in the room, they stop talking. Mm. <laughs> he said, is that what it feels like? Gosh. And I said, yes, you know, you're, you're not just one of the group anymore. You're, you have responsibilities, and they know that, and they respect it, but um, you're in a different place. And so there's that, that professional distance that's uh, it's a challenge. Mm. General, the, the last piece of art or a beautiful object I think I've appreciated flowers more. I think as I as I go along, I think it was been fun when my little boys and I would go um, by flowers to stop and and smell them and, and draw it in and to try to use all of your senses rather than just uh, one. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the vibrant colors, and the aromas, the irregular shapes. I think when you're in a structured environment, sometimes it's uh, it's really helpful to. Look at something that's more amorphous, amorphous, and it brings a different uh, angle to things. I like that my boys sniff flowers. Do you prefer the garden or a wild bed of flowers? I think the wild beds of flowers are yeah. uh, most spectacular to me. Living in Colorado as we do, uh, it's not as um, verdant as some environments. But when there are those little groups of, of mountain flowers, something glorious about that. Mm. That's very beautiful. Um, <laughs> A question about your current position, which is um, vice president of the National Basketball Association in charge of referee operations. Um, I wonder what you think about the politicization of sport in, in recent months. And I'm thinking about Colin Kaepernick and the NFL, for instance. What, what, what is the appropriate relationship, if, if you have an idea, between sports and politics? It's been uh, fascinating to not just go to the private sector, but to an entertainment mm. section. And that's not the entertainment part is not what appealed to me. What appealed to me with the referees is that they really are the stewards of the integrity of the game, that they try to make it a fair pa- platform for these great athletes to perform on. And I am amazed at the politicization, even of the, of the anthem. For people in service, I think you'll, you'll find differences of opinion. Um, but one of the rights that we protected 
uh, for our country that we think is a constitutional right is the right to dissent and that people have the right to express their dissent in their own personal ways. That's part of being an American. Um, the good fortune of the NBA, the NBA is a rule that the players need to stand and, and mm. while well, the anthem's being played, but also the leadership of the NBA has been very supportive of players in expressing their concerns for social issues to be able to wear T-shirts and express it in different ways and not align that with with the anthem per se. So I can't really speak to how other sure. other leagues handle it. I just would say, as I even listen into in the radio, sometimes you hear opinions being expressed. I I think a lot of people who've who've served who know very much that I will always put my hand over my heart and stand for the national anthem because that's my duty still even in in retirement, um, but because of the oath I've taken but very much respect other people's rights and, and hopefully um, can respect what pain caused them to act out that way and then try to understand what is the issue at hand and how can we resolve that. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really important. Uh, it's, uh, you know, Olympic, the Olympic movements are beautiful and, uh, and, and when, when we celebrate our or origins, but the more beautiful part is when when you can see that the athletes really are in it together. It's at the not necessarily the opening ceremony. It's at the end when they all mix together, and and share that together. I think that's the value of it. Hopefully, those are the lessons we teach mm. our children, um, and not to be divided by symbols. Our guest this week was Lieutenant General Michelle Johnson. Cover art is by Alistair Debling, sound by Jay Park, and music by Alice Rico. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week.